Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today for Global Impact Sunday. We are really excited to be able to uh, come together and uh, focus in on what the Lord is doing across the nations. We've got our flags up here of the missionaries, countries, uh, for those missionaries that we support. Uh, and we're really pleased to see uh, what the Lord is doing across the across the continents, and uh, for his allowing us to be a, a part of that and encouraging them and praying for them and giving uh, to the work that they do there. Uh, we're also really excited this morning to have Mike Canham here. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce him. Uh, for those of you who were in the 9 o'clock uh, time with us, you got to uh, hear from Mike then and get to hear a little bit about him. But he is a longtime friend to our church, and as you heard Pastor Chris say, a longtime friend to him, I think for a couple decades uh, three decades. Um, time flies. So, um, and also he's been uh, teaching at the Cornerstone Seminary for 13 years. Um, and he now describes himself, let me see if I can get this right, as a missionary theologian to train the church at large. So, uh, and what that means basically is he is going across the nations where there are missionaries on the field uh, and who need seminary training. And he is, as a trained uh, theologian, bringing uh, advanced training to them so that they, in turn, can then train their flocks and continue to spread the gospel and spread the, spread the good news of Jesus. So we're really excited to have him here sharing with us. And with that, let's give Mike a warm welcome. Thank you, brother. Oh, sorry. Well, it is a joy to be back with you. Where's Andrew? See, did he leave? I like, I, 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 you know, sometimes you have a tough time resisting temptation. He did a wonderful job with this up here, but I could not, almost could not resist seeing him hold that globe. I almost started singing, he's got the whole world <laughs> in his hands, but didn't think that would maybe be the right time to do that. But uh, uh, it is certainly a joy to be back with you. Um, uh, this morning, and a joy uh, and, and an honor to be asked to be part of this uh, incredible weekend that you are having together. Um, especially since for me, I'm sort of a newbie to this piece of of uh, the international piece. Uh, most of my, all of my ministry thus far has been here in the states, and uh, some international travel as an extension of what I've been doing here. And the Lord has put me in a, in a position now where I have the privilege of seeking to do this full-time. So I've been working toward that. COVID's kind of delayed the full-time implementation of this longer than I had wanted. But uh, in the meantime, been able to meet with churches and prepare and actually make some trips before everything kind of shut down. So I'm praying that by the time I, I get to full-time... Uh, support that I'll be able to do more traveling um, starting at the beginning of this coming year. Um, so let me, um, let me take you this morning, and I'm not going to tell you what passage yet. Um, I think it's one that I have spoken on before here several years ago, I believe, because it's a favorite passage of mine, a favorite sermon of mine. But it occurred to me when, when I was asked earlier this year to... Uh, be able uh, to bring a, a message this weekend specifically pertaining to missions. One of, the, one of the things that's significant about this passage is it provides the Old Testament basis 
for what we call the Great Commission. Amen. So that's going to be our connection. I'll probably make the connection toward the end. So I want to kind of build toward that in the brief eight hours that I have with you this morning. But, um, but I want to start by asking you, and you may, if, if I've done this before, you may remember this from before. Um, but if I were to ask you, or remind you that there are many places where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Sometimes it's a direct quotation. Sometimes it's an allusion, meaning it uses words that come from an Old Testament text, but it's not an exact quote. But there is one verse in the Old Testament that is the most quoted in the New Testament. About 26 times in nine different books in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you to guess which passage that is, what would you say? He remembers, yes. Psalm 110. Now that's not what you would, most believers or most people would immediately guess. Because they think Old Testament have to be something like Isaiah 53 or uh, Psalm 23. It was going to be one of the Psalms because everybody knows Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 does show up in the New Testament, particularly in John 10. And Isaiah 53 as a lengthier passage is all over the place in the New Testament. But there's the one verse, and specifically in Psalm 110, it's verse 1. Said in my right, the Lord said to my Lord, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that's the passage where I want us to go this morning. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So part of the question I want to ask us to think about as we begin this morning is why, of all the verses in the Old Testament, why is it that verse that is constantly referenced? And I want to give you a couple of suggestions um, to set our minds for thinking about what we'll talk about this morning. There are those passages in the Old Testament. If this is I, I, One of the things I teach is hermeneutics or which is a biblical interpretation. One of the things I've discovered in my own studies over the years is that there are certain passages in the Old Testament that become significant because they are both looking back and looking forward at the same time. A couple of other examples just to illustrate this. Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him is a passage that looks back to Genesis 1, God's original creation of the human race. But it's also looking ahead to Hebrews 2, because Jesus came to accomplish that which the first Adam failed to do. So you have this passage in Psalm 8 that reminds us of God's original intent and his original goal in creation, and is also looking ahead to Jesus, who will ultimately fulfill this. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I have called my son, looks back to the deliverance of of, of Israel out of the nation of Egypt, but there's another son that's also going to be called out of Egypt. And the very passage in Hebrew, Hosea 11 is messianic, it's looking ahead to him. So Matthew chapter 2 quotes Hosea 11.1 1 as being fulfilled in Jesus. 
Psalm 110 is another one of these texts because verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, looks back to a passage in Genesis 14 where this man by the name of Melchizedek, who by the way was both a king and a priest, comes on the scene suddenly. This is before the nation of Israel had come into existence. In fact, Abraham was still alive. He came and Abraham offered him tithes. And then he disappears from the scene. And then you have this one verse in Psalm 110 that he's referenced in verse 4, and it becomes one of the key foundations for an entire book of the New Testament. Where a good third, three chapters of the book of Hebrews is written to expound, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is a passage that provides the basis for the Great Commission in the Gospels. It provides the basis for a number of the New Testament epistles. It provides the basis for the book of Hebrews. And it provides the basis for the book of Revelation. All of those go back directly or indirectly to Psalm 110. Let me give you one other suggestion, then I want to look at it. A third thing to highlight here, and I think this is part of the reason why this text is so significant to the writers of the New Testament. And I'm finding myself today ha- having to merge about three sermons into one. Why is this so significant to the writers of the New Testament? I, I want to give you this suggestion. Uh, we have been privileged to, to, to have grown up and have been part of churches that preach and proclaim Jesus and preach the Bible. So I would say most believers in churches like Clayton Valley and the churches that I generally have uh, the privilege of fellowshipping with, most believers know how to articulate what Jesus came to do the first time. We know that he was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. We know that he lived a sinless, perfect life. We know that he spent three years preaching and teaching. We know that he died on the cross as a sinless man to bear our sins. He was the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that that which was lost. We know that he died. We know that after three days the Lord raised him from the dead. And we know that he ascended to go back to heaven. And so we can look back and see that as we look back and then we can also look ahead we know that he's coming again and Christians for 2,000 years have anticipated the second coming of Jesus we love him even though we don't see him but we wait with joyful anticipation for the time that will come when he will be revealed but there's a gap between the two There's a gap that so far has been 2,000 years, roughly. This gap between when he came the first time and this gap that, that we look back to, that we remind ourselves of every time we partake of the Lord's table, but we also remind ourselves when we partake of the Lord's table that he's coming again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, that looks back, until he comes, that looks ahead. But what is he doing now? Psalm 110 is the answer to that question. This is why this text is so hugely significant. We're going to be looking at this in a few minutes, but Jesus actually quoted this verse three times 
during his earthly ministry. At least three times that we know of because they're recorded for us in Scripture. All three of them were during the last week of his life, and two of them were in connection with his trial. We're going to be looking at one of those two in a few minutes. So Jesus quoted this reference in connection to himself. So let me give you the theme and the big picture of Psalm 110, and I'm going to be narrowing in in a few minutes just on verses 2 and 3, because verses 2 and 3 are what I believe provide the basis for our Great Commission. But this is the theme, and I'm, I'm, I'm heavily influenced by this by one of my own heroes in ministry, one of my college professors who did a series of amazing expositions on this, actually after my college years, but I heard them 30 years ago, and they percolated ever since, and about 10 years ago I got the privilege of finally studying this psalm for myself, and his uh, exposition of this was huge in its influence. So I want to uh, give honor and credit to uh, Mark Minnick, who is a pastor in my part of the world now, in Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, whose impact on me has been immense, and specifically in this passage has done so much to help open my eyes to the riches that are in here. But if we could put a theme statement, and I'm borrowing this from Dr. Minnick, if we could put a theme statement that would cover the entire psalm in a nutshell, it would be this. That Jesus Christ is presently reigning, or presently ruling, in a triumphant reign that will climax in the subjugation of all of his enemies. Jesus Christ is presently ruling. We're not waiting for him to rule. He's ruling right now. And this is the part I'm going to prove to you from the New Testament. He is presently ruling in a triumphant reign that will climax in the subjugation of all of his enemies. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now there's an amazing, uh, in fact, Chris, when I first started wrestling through this passage, you know, we wrestle over how do you outline a passage. And Psalm 110 is challenging in this way because if you go with the structure of the psalm, there are two divisions, one to four and five to seven. So do you outline it according to the two divisions or the three offices? Because there's three descriptions of Jesus in Psalm 110. I figured out a way to do both. So I didn't have to make that. So the second one is kind of a hinge that holds the first two together. So verse four is the challenge. Where do you, do you fit that with the first point or the second point? It actually is a hinge that links verses two and three to verse 5 to 7. So let me give you um, <clears throat> the ways in which Jesus is pictured as the ruler, as the one who is reigning. Verse 1, set in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, covers the entire psalm. It's the introduction statement. Verses 2 through 7, the rest of the psalm, unpacks what that looks like. Verses 2 and 3, he is presently reigning as king. Verse 4, he is a priest forever. What's forever mean? Forever. 
which means, if you break it down mathematically, forever means now plus the future, right? He is that now, and he will be even into eternity. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then verses 5 through 7 is, he's a judge. He will come as a judge. That's the part of his rule that still looks in the future. But you can imagine David, who writes these words under inspiration a thousand years before Jesus, had to be scratching his head a little bit. First of all, don't miss this. These, the Lord, and your your translations, most of them I think would have all capital letters here. And this is the way English translators would reflect the fact that we are talking about Yahweh. This is the name that Moses, that God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And it's the, it's the, uh, the name that Jews won't even pronounce because they're afraid to take it in vain. And so usually the way they would reference it is when they came across reading it in their, their Old Testament scrolls is they would substitute the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the word for Lord. And that's probably reflected in the English translation here, but it's distinguished because you have this word Lord in all capital letters. The Lord said to my Lord, which is another one who has sovereignty, who's also, in a word, part of the same Godhead. David is listening in to a conversation that's taking place between God the Father and God the Son. Do you ever wonder what God talks about? David is allowed to listen in. There's a whole sermon right here, but let me just make this little observation. What we call the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons, is not a New Testament or a post-New Testament invention. Biblical writers knew about this. This is one of the passages in the Old Testament that indicates that there is more than one person in the Godhead. And David is allowed to listen in between these two. And he hears this exposition A thousand years before Jesus comes, he knows that it is his Lord, but he also knows from what we call the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, that this will also be his descendant. I don't know whether he's putting all of this together. We know this from being able to look back and connect up these passages from the standpoint of fulfilled revelation. David is standing before these things, anticipating all of this. The Lord said to my Lord who's also my descendant, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's ruling as a king in verses 2 and 3, but he's a priest. Wait a minute. David's the king of Israel. He knows, because this is one of the experiences his predecessor had, he knows that a priest and a king cannot occupy the, the, cannot be the same person in Israel. Whenever a king would intrude on the priest's office, bad things happened. Several of David's successors learned that. 
So this is where David has got to be scratching his head a little bit. How can you have someone who is both a priest and a king and be the same person? It's got to be a different order. David was announcing a thousand years ahead of time the end of the present order. He knew, under inspiration, a thousand years ahead of time, that everything that, that he was experiencing, even his own kingship, was preparatory. It was anticipatory. It was looking ahead. So, how do we know that this is talking about a present rule? How do we know that, you know, we, like I said, we look back to what Jesus came to do the first time. We're looking ahead to what he's coming to do the second time. How do we know that this passage teaches or, or speaks of what he is doing now? Three lines of evidence for you. The first one, I want to take you to what Jesus himself said. And... Uh, this is where a huge piece of this is looking at how the New Testament references this passage. 26 times, as I mentioned. Here is one of them. As I mentioned earlier, turn with me to Matthew 26, if you would. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus himself referenced this passage three times during the course of his earthly ministry. All of them in the last week of his ministry. And... Two of them in connection with the trial. Uh, this is one of the passages that links it with the trial of Jesus. Matthew 26, I want to pick up at verse 62. Just highlight for background, I don't have time to develop this this morning, but one of the evidences of the absolute sinlessness of Jesus is the fact that they had to break every law in the book to get him convicted. That permeates this passage. The trial of Jesus actually, in many ways, becomes the trial of his judges. The people who are on trial is not really Jesus. It's the people who are breaking the law to convict him on false charges. They convict him because he claimed to be the Son of God, which he was. You had six different testimonies concerning his sinlessness. His innocence, starting, you know, I'm giving them a random order here. A pilot's wife who sends him an email saying, have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. Um, uh, Judas comes back and throws the money on the floor of the temple. I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate at one point sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back and says that he's done nothing worthy of death. Pilate, either three or six times, depending on how you harmonize the gospel account, says, I find no fault in him. There are thieves crucified on either side of Jesus, both of them blaspheming him. One of them says to the other, why do you continue to blaspheme him? We've, we're getting what we deserve justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. He repents Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then there's that battle-hardened Roman centurion who is watching all this. And as Jesus dies, he says, Matthew says, truly he was the Son of God. Luke records it, truly he was a righteous man. He's righteous because he was who he claimed to be, but Jesus still dies. But there's someone who hasn't given his verdict yet. That's God the Father who raises him from the dead 
and overturns wicked human verdicts. So Romans 1.3, Jesus, who was born in the seed of David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God. Not became the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That proved his deity. It proved that he was who he said he was. It proved that his work on our behalf was accepted as our priest. But that's another sermon. But I want to pick up at verse 62 here of Matthew 26, because this is in the middle of this trial. The high priest stood up, this would be uh, Caiaphas at this point, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? I mean, false charges, false witnesses had just uh, brought some false charges against him, and Jesus didn't answer. He had every, he, he had every right not to answer. So the high priest said, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, verse 63, and the high priest once again breaks the law by forcing Jesus, by putting him under oath to answer, which in the high priest's mind would have amounted to self-incrimination. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us, and notice when it gets down to who Jesus is, you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said it. But he doesn't just say that. He gives two passages to substantiate what he said. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. That's Psalm 110. And coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7. So Jesus actually merges two passages here both of which were, were regarded, correctly regarded, as messianic. Jesus is saying, Psalm 110, verse 1, is talking about me. Notice the response of the high priest, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Now there's one word I want to draw your attention to, draw your attention to here before before I move on to my second and third piece of evidence. Notice Jesus says, hereafter. After this, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. So in other words, Jesus is saying, there's going to be a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1, as it pertains to me, and it's going to be after this, the this being when Jesus is speaking at his trial. When was this fulfilled? I want to pull in my second witness at this point. Go to Peter. And particularly in the book of Acts. But this is Peter's proclamation. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is... This, this is Peter's first, the first sermon in church history. Uh, and Acts chapter 2. The church has been born. Day of Pentecost. 50 days later. After uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, comes down. The church is born. Uh, there are uh, accompanying evidences of this in people speaking in other languages. Everyone else is, is mocking this. And so Peter gets up and preaches a sermon explaining the significance of what had happened on that day. He begins with Joel 2. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is to look at how Peter ends this message. And I'm going to pick up at verse um, 29 of Acts 2. 
As Paul, Peter is drawing this message to a close, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, and he's going to reference David because he's about to quote him, the patriarch David that he is both killed and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, he looked ahead, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This is another psalm that he's referencing. Now look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, past tense now, he raised him up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted. Notice that, past tense there. Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you now see in here, and then he gives the biblical basis for what he just said. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. Again, he's going to be very careful. He's going to quote David, but he's going to make very clear, I'm quoting David, but I'm not talking about David. I'm not referencing David. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, for, uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When did this happen? It happened after Matthew 26, but before Peter preached in Acts 2, because Peter in Acts 2 talks about this as something that's already happened. It happened when Jesus ascended. Remember this? Acts 1, he's caught up. And the Bible tells us in Acts 1 that the clouds hid him from their sight. But here, Peter gives us an opportunity to kind of peel back the clouds, as it were, and see what happened on the other side. When Jesus comes back to heaven as an ascension, he does not come back in defeat. He comes back in triumph. And there's the Father who says, Sit at my right hand. As a king, you're ruling. As a priest, your work is done. Triumphant. Now again, there's still a future component of his reign that we anticipate. I'm a premillennials, pre-trib guy. I believe that Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom on earth. But that is not the beginning of his rule. He right now is ruling in heaven. And it is a very definite rule. That will climax when he comes and sets up his kingdom on earth and finally subjugates all of his enemies. But he is seated there right now. So we have Jesus applying this passage to himself and pointing ahead to actually something that would not be that far in the future. Peter, looking back at this, and then let me take you to Paul for my third witness here, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. 
And this is one of those places in um, Ephesians where you have this amazing prayer, amazing benediction. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be a benediction because it's not at the end of the book, but it is an amazing prayer at the beginning, uh, right after you have this amazing theological long sentence in verses 3 to 14. Paul begins to talk about how he's praying for these believers in verse 15. I want you to pick up at verse 18 of Ephesians 1. This is what Paul is praying. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now look at verse 20. Which he brought about in Jesus in Christ when he raised him, past tense, from the dead, and seated him, past tense, at his right hand, in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion. And commentators have killed a lot of trees arguing over whether these four terms here are in reference to earthly rulers or heavenly rulers, like angels or even demons. The answer is... Yes, because it's not just over those four things. It's almost like Paul said, in case I left anything out, like governors of states or presidents of countries, I'll say that he is ruling over every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. I would have expected to read something like this, not only in the age to come, but in this age. Because I'm so used to thinking of Jesus' rule as so future-oriented. But Paul says it's in this age, and it will continue into the age to come. Verse 22, and he has put all things under, in subjection, under his feet. And it means your footstool language. And gave him his head. Now look at the language here. He gave him his head over all things to the church. We talk about Ephesians teaching that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and it does teach that, but that's not the precise language. Jesus' headship of the church is an extension of his headship over everything. He is the head over all things and given to the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills it all in all. And this is what he's doing now, ruling from the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus David predicted it. Jesus anticipated it. Peter and Paul both look back. He is ruling and reigning right now. Now, what does all this have to do with missions emphasis? I'm going to give you my punchline. I may not have time to get there otherwise. So I'm going to give you my punchline and back up. We all know verse 19 of the Great Commission. Going therefore into all the world, we make disciples of all the nations. But we forget that verse 19 is preambled by verse 18. What does Jesus say in verse 18 of Matthew 28? He starts by saying, All authority, the authority, that word, it's a common word in Matthew. Matthew's been building up to this. It's the word 
of a king. It's the authority of a king. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's not just the king of Israel. He's not just the king of believers. He's not just the king of this world. He's the king of the universe. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, going therefore, make disciples. In other words, why do we go, whether it's in Clayton Valley, whether it's the San Francisco Bay Area, whether it's in South Carolina, whether it's in nations where Jesus is known, whether it's in nations where Jesus isn't known, why do we go to take the gospel everywhere? What is the basis for our e- even being able to do this? Because Jesus is king. And we go because it is an extension of his authority that is universal. So the Great Commission is rooted in this text in Psalm 110. Now I wish I had time to unpack everything. I want to just walk you through a couple of nuggets in the Old Testament and show you how this, at least part of how this works. Go back with me to Psalm 110. And I only have time this morning to look at verses 2 and 3. You know, verse 4, as I mentioned, basis for Hebrews. Verses 5 to 7, basis for the book of Revelation. I can't go to those this morning. But I want, to look, want you to look at a couple things in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 110. David, again, he's listening into this conversation that takes place between the members of the Godhead. Verse 2, the Lord, notice all caps again, this is Yahweh, will stretch forth your strong scepter. Scepter was the symbol of a king. He will stretch it forth from where? What's it say here? Stretch it forth from Zion. Now, what's Zion a word for? Often used as a word for what? Pardon? I heard? Thank you, yes. In other words, not Israel generally as much as Jerusalem specifically. It's another name for the city of Jerusalem. Hold that thought. So... David here, listening into this conversation between the members of the Godhead, two of them, is anticipating a time that the Lord Yahweh is going to stretch forth his kingly rule beginning at Zion. When will this happen? Skip down to verse 3. Verse 3 says that this will happen in the day of your power. Now I have to say this because it's important. Uh, for uh, all these details are important. The word power there, there are two different words for power. There's the power of right, the rule, but there's also the power of might. The difference between a weightlifter who can bench press 500 pounds and maybe a guy who's a total wimp, but, but he's, he, as far as his physical stature, but he has authority that can take the 500-pound guy and throw him in jail or cut his head off. That's the power of right. The word that's used when the, when the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament was made, this was over 200 years before Jesus was born. They used the word dunamis here. This is the day of your dunamis. This is the strength that goes along with the right to rule. And where Jesus is, he has the power of right and he has the power of might. So he's going to stretch forth his scepter, beginning in Zion on the day of his dunamis. Does this sound at all like anything in the New Testament? Let me give you a hint. Acts 1, 8. 
which really provides the outline for the whole book of Acts that shows how the gospel gets from Jerusalem to Rome. But Acts 1.8, you shall receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses beginning where? Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, it begins at Jerusalem where the events happen and stretches forth from there. The Lord will stretch forth his scepter beginning in Zion. And it's going to happen on the day of his power, which is when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 1.8. So this passage provides the basis for the book of Acts that traces and shows how the gospel begins at Jerusalem. And at the end of the book of Acts, you have Paul in Rome, the centerpiece of the world at that point, preaching the kingdom of God as the book ends in fulfillment of what Psalm 110, verses 2 and 3 anticipates. Now, there's more good stuff here. Let me go back to verse 2 at the end of it. Look at, look at verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, notice this, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a king unlike any other king. You know what happens in world history when there's like a revolution in a country and sometimes the would-be ruler has to flee into exile and his followers have to secure the kingdom for him. And I'm afraid that sometimes we picture Jesus that way. He ran off to heaven and it's our job to make this place where he can rule. This is another part of the sermon. I just want to say that if that's your view of Jesus, that he went back to heaven with his tail between his legs, as it were, and is sitting there just waiting for God to let him come back and set up his rule, you are serving a powerless Savior. And your Christian life, correspondingly, will be, will be powerless. But we don't serve a king who went back to heaven in defeat. He went back in triumph. And unlike other kings who sometimes have to have the kingdom secured for them, Jesus is an amazing king. He's setting up his kingdom right in the midst of his enemies. Now, when he comes again, he's going to triumph over his enemies in judgment. But how is he setting up his kingdom in the midst of his enemies now? By redeeming them. Don't forget what you and I were right god demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us much more than now being uh, reconciled by his death we will be justified by his life for if when we were the enemies of god paul says in romans 5 10 we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more being reconciled we will be saved by his life there's more than one way to conquer an enemy You can subjugate him with the power of force, or you can transform him with the power of the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing. I was so gratified uh, in the prayer that Dave prayed this morning. The gospel is the power of God to remind us of this. And then 
Uh, somebody else referencing Romans 1.16 in connection with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ because it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who's believing. Let me add another reference to this. Colossians 1.13, when Paul writes to the Colossians, he reminds them that you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's how he's ruling now in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling from, his, from beside his father's throne. There will come a time when he will come back and he will establish his rule over the entire world by force. But why hasn't he done that yet? Because he's not willing that any, 2 Peter 3, should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The question isn't whether you will submit to Jesus as Lord. Everyone will. The, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The issue is under what conditions? Will you submit to him as Savior or will you submit to him as judge? The question isn't whether you'll submit. But the beautiful thing, and this is in that 2,000 year gap, 2,000 years of church history, what Jesus has been doing is setting up his kingdom in the midst of his enemies by running rescue missions. And if you're here, brothers and sisters, this morning, having trusted in Jesus Christ, you are one of those enemies who has been transformed into a friend. You're no longer the slaves of sin. You're now the slaves of God by virtue of the gospel of Jesus Christ that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, gave you new life and made you and transformed you and made you more become more like Jesus. That's what he's doing now. That's the expression of his kingship in our generation. He's transforming people, his enemies. Other enemies, he's restraining. Other enemies, he's judging. But many of his enemies, he's transforming right now. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Now, verse 3, and I can only run through this with you very quickly because I'm almost out of time. But verse 3 of Psalm 110 gives a fourfold description of the people who have been transformed from his enemies to his people. In other words, verse 3 is talking about us, what he's doing in us. Let me just, oh, this is good stuff. This is. 30 minutes and 3. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. I wish it had not been translated that way because that's a noun in the Hebrew, not a verb. Let me retranslate this. Your people will be free will offerings. That's the Hebrew word that's used in verse 3. They will be free will offerings on the day of your power. It's the word that's used all over the place in the book of Numbers to describe what the, what the Israelites were supposed to, what, what, what were to offer. David, listening into a conversation between the two members of the Godhead, is anticipating a day when the people themselves will be the free will offering. Does that sound like anything in the New Testament? Try Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. You yourself are that, based on the, transform, the transformation that Romans 1 through 11 has been describing.
So he's describing people that are themselves the offering. Look at verse, the second thing. In holy array, or holy garments. I had a little more time to develop this, but let me remind you of a text in Zechariah 3 when Joshua the high priest, remember this, is standing before God and and the angel of the capital L-O-R-D is standing beside him. That's Jesus. Satan's accusing. Jesus is there basically saying, shut up. Canon's revised paraphrase. But in the midst of that whole thing, Joshua's filthy garments are removed and he's given new garments. And that, that, that figure shows up a number of places in Scripture to describe justification. This is what happens when God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Our sins were taken and placed on Jesus and God made him a new sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're given those new garments. These are people who have been justified. Amen. These are people that have the righteousness of another that himself was the only person, only man who ever lived who was righteous. Number three, you have this interesting, and there's a little bit of a figurative description here with these last two. And so I'm going to give you what I think is the best explanation. And we may have to wait till we get to heaven and find out exactly what David was anticipating here. But I think the third one is a little bit actually easier to discern than you might think. He says this will happen in, from the womb of the dawn. Focus in on that word womb, W-O-M-B. What should that make you think of? What happens in a womb? Birth, right? right? You associate a womb with birth. John 3, you must be born again. So these are not just people who have been made free will offerings. These are not people who have just been uh, 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 legally given the righteousness of another. These are people who have been born again. They have that new creation, new nature, if you will, if you want to use that terminology. They have this new Existence. They've been transformed. They've been regenerated. And then that expression that it's at the end of verse 3, which is frankly the hardest one to interpret. Your youth, your youth are to you as the dew. I think what's going on here, uh, the reference to dew, um, if you ask yourself, how many dew drops have you ever seen all by themselves? When the dew comes in the morning, is it like one drop? There's a lot of it all together. I think this is anticipating that there will be times when multitudes of people will come into the kingdom at the same time. Acts, 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4, I think it is. Two chapters later, there's 4,000 people. I mentioned in Sunday school earlier, you know where the fastest growing church in the world is today? Iran. 15 years ago, estimated 25,000 believers in Iran, which I thought was a pretty high number then. But I talked with somebody who works with somebody who works with somebody who's training pastors in Iran, and that's as, 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 as dare, as I, specific as I get. But he says the numbers, estimated numbers in Iran in just the last 15 years is now between 500,000 and a million. 20 times the size it was, Just 15 years ago, all the time, this is happening. You know where the second fastest growing church is happening? Afghanistan. People going door to door. 
looking for Christians to kill them, the Christians are going door to door ahead of them, preaching the gospel to their neighbors. Amazing things happening because the gospel is unstoppable and unthwartable. So David here is describing an anticipation. People who are themselves free will offerings, people who have been gifted with the righteousness of Christ, people who have been transformed by regeneration, and multitudes of people coming because Jesus Christ is still building his church. All authority is given unto him and in heaven on earth, and that's the basis on which not only we can go legally, as it were, on the authority of Jesus Christ, but go confidently and preach the gospel to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, because Jesus Christ is presently ruling with a triumphant reign that will climax with the subjugation of all his enemies. And now he's transforming them. He's done it with us and has gifted us with the privilege, the amazing privilege of doing that as we have the privilege of taking the gospel to all of creation. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much more here. We were just able to scratch the surface, but I pray, Lord, that you would even transform our thinking and transform our passion and transform our confidence with the reality of this amazing passage and the hope and the strength and the encouragement that it gave to the early church. 26 times in the New Testament this passage is referenced because it points the focus and what Jesus is doing now. He's ruling and reigning from heaven and he's redeeming his people. He's running these rescue missions into the kingdom of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's setting up his kingdom in the midst of his enemies from heaven because he is the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Lord, would you use that reality to transform our thinking? We anticipate your return. We know that you're going to come and we joyfully anticipate that day when you're even going to set up your kingdom here on earth. But let us not fall into the trap of thinking that's when your rule starts. You're ruling and reigning right now from heaven. And you're transforming people with the power of the gospel and transforming us into from enemies to children of God. So we thank you and we praise you. And would you use this to challenge our hearts in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.